Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. Hi, we're talking today with Kate Hughes. Kate's based in the Philippines where it's very warm today in Manila and she works there at the Asian Development Bank. And Kate supports countries in the Asia and the Pacific region as they're transforming their economies to be less carbon intensive. And she also works promoting regional cooperation on climate. Part of the reason I was so keen to talk to Kate on this podcast is that in her role as a climate specialist, she gets to see both what's happening in other countries, so how they're thinking about climate change in their economy, but also what kinds of discussions are going on between countries. So I'll be asking Kate today a bit about what happens in these conversations and are we making any progress? So Kate, it's lovely to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Liana. It's great to be here. Kate, can you tell people what the Asian Development Bank is and what they do? Yeah, absolutely. So the Asian Development Bank, or the ADB, it's a multilateral development bank. So it was set up in 1966 to foster economic growth in what was one of the poorest regions of the world. So it has 68 member countries, and 49 of those countries are within the Asia and Pacific region, which means they're eligible to access the bank's assistance. That assistance is delivered through loans, grants, equity investments, and then technical assistance as well, all with a focus on promoting social and economic development. Then we also do a lot of work to maximize the development impact of that assistance. In terms of uh, climate change, the ADB has really been working on it for a long time, recognizing what a critical issue climate change is for our region and remembering that core mission that we have of poverty alleviation and contributing to a prosperous and inclusive resilient and sustainable region for asia and pacific i guess the urgency of dealing with climate change really can't be stressed enough right we've already seen a sharp huge increase in terms of climate shocks. So things like floods, droughts, cyclones, and they're already having a huge impact on people, on water security and, and health, and especially vulnerable populations, women, children, and really the poorest of the poor. So it's those vulnerable groups that we know will continue to be most impacted by climate change and that real driver of the need to step up investment in adaptation and really on building resilience. But then on the other side, the Asia Pacific region, so it's responsible now for close to half of global greenhouse gas emissions. And even though in COVID there was uh, a, a sharp short-term decline in emissions, we've already seen a big bounce back. And that's mainly due to rebounds in fossil fuel demand. And the International Energy Agency, for example, put out a report recently that they think that global energy related emissions next year will be heading for their second largest annual increase ever. And a huge driver of that is projected coal growth in coal demand in Asia. 
So we know that tackling these sources of emissions in the region, decarbonising energy systems are really critical if the ADB is going to achieve its mission. So that's the context for why climate change is so important for ADB. In terms of what we do on it, and we have some really specific targets, one is that climate finance from ADB's own resources will reach 80 billion. So that's around 6.7 billion per year of climate finance that ADB has committed to raise. And then jointly with other multilateral development banks, so that's similar institutions that do work um, in other regions or globally, uh, similar to us, we've committed jointly to align our operations with the Paris Agreement, which basically means that all of the activities of the bank will support the, the objectives of the Paris Agreement on climate change. So I guess in terms of some more specific and examples of what we actually do that are easier to understand. So we do things like provide policy support to countries, helping them to see how they can mainstream climate action into their national or regional development planning. We're also doing work to build institutional capacity for climate changing countries. So, uh, for example, how they start to factor climate risk into their fiscal decision making processes, doing work mobilizing climate finance, which is so critical for climate action. So that includes you know, accessing the Green Climate Fund or other uh, multilateral funds that have been set up to provide climate finance supporting countries with disaster risk management, including disaster risk financing, and then a lot of work on developing carbon pricing instruments. And then include, in addition to that technical assistance, then we have our core bank operations. So loans, equity investments, grants in things like clean energy, smart grids, green cities, resilient agriculture and food security, and many others. You talked about the ADB's work in helping countries build climate change into their fiscal decision making. Can you talk about some ways in which countries are doing that? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of work, say, for example, with ministries of financing, when they're starting to look at things like budget tagging, how they start to identify and quantify climate risk and bring that into their decision-making processes at all levels of budget, so national level, state level, how that upstream consideration of climate risk starts to influence the type of investments they want to make, how they spend scarce resources, and really trying to make it a systematic part of the fiscal decision-making processes um, and policies of the country. Are you able to comment on which countries have really got that built in, in a very sort of systematic way into their decision-making of those that you work with? And I think there's varying degrees for different countries, but there's a long way to go in terms of having that really embedded in fiscal um, planning processes and policies in the region. Yeah, okay. Okay, thank you. Now, I'm interested to understand a little bit more about how you came to this work and a little bit more about your background and what took you to that work. 
Sure. So I trained as an engineer and after I started working, I became really interested in energy politics. So I actually started working in oil and gas and it really brought to my attention that sort of interplay between engineering and politics and how um, that can really influence energy projects. So after working for a few years, I went back and did a master's degree in energy policy and planning. And after I finished that degree in 2005, it was actually really luck that took me to start working in climate change. I'd become really interested in climate change and sustainable development, particularly from the energy perspective. And someone kindly introduced me to my former boss, Michael, who was building a climate change practice for an engineering consultancy. So he start, took me on and I started working for him. And I had to work really hard, but it, he really gave me amazing opportunities to work in areas that very few people in Australia were working on at the time. And it really grew from there. And as part of that work, we also were doing consulting work for the ADB and some of the other international organisations. So executing some of these projects that now that I'm at ADB, I manage. And I think as well, so I actually grew up in Asia and I was really fortunate to have travelled a lot as a child. So I think that all fed into it. And now when I think about climate change, I guess it's really a meeting point of those two aspects in terms of engineering it's about solving problems and how we use technology how we develop solutions but then on the other side it's about this passion for social justice and addressing this issue that really is going to be so critical and so devastating for so many people if we don't address it fast we are i think in australia acutely aware of bushfires and most recently floods. Are there other adverse weather events that you would draw Australians' attention to that are happening in the Asia-Pacific region? Some of the big sort of standout weather events there recently that may or may not have come people across people's radars? Yeah, absolutely. The Pacific continuously suffers from storms and cyclones and the islands are battered and get cut off completely. In many countries in Asia Pacific, they face dual challenges of droughts in some regions, but floods in, in other low-lying regions. People can already see seasonal impacts on agriculture. The growing season is shorter because the temperatures are rising. There's issues of water scarcity with temperatures rising, increased incidents of fires in other regions as well, maybe not as acutely as Australia and as well known as Australia. But generally, there's just an increase in all types of what we call climate shocks. So weather-related events that worsening or becoming more severe or the impacts are lasting longer because of climate change. Okay, thank you. You've talked about the Asian Development Bank as having an important role in promoting regional cooperation on climate, and you mentioned the Paris Agreement. Can you give us a bit of an understanding about what happens in these international negotiation processes? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'll try to explain it in a straightforward way because it can get a little bit complicated. But the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or the UNFCCC, that's the main international treaty on fighting climate change. And it actually emerged from the historic Earth Summit that was held in Rio in 1992 that a lot of people are quite familiar with which was really the first time that the international community got together and acknowledged that there were global environmental challenges and that these would potentially impact economic development, which everyone had and is so focused on. So the climate negotiation processes, they occur through the UNFCCC. So it's really the primary forum for international cooperation on climate change and then each year they have an annual meeting an annual it's quite a formal meeting under the UN processes of what are called the parties to the agreement the conference of parties so those meetings are called the COPs which people may or may not have heard of but the parties really are the countries that have signed the agreements, but then there's also, for example, the EU, which is a collective of more than one country. So they're referred to as the parties to the agreement. Sorry, and what does COP stand for? COP, what does it stand for? So it stands for the Conference of Parties. So each year the COPs are numbered. So the first one was held in 1995 in Berlin, and this year we're up to 26. And so through those international processes, it was where the Kyoto Protocol was first established in 97. And that was really the first protocol to operationalize this treaty. So where actual action would happen underneath this treaty, international treaty between parties. So all parties can take part in the COP. So anyone that is signed up to the agreement, which is most countries, and then businesses, international organisations like ADB, other interest groups, NGOs, they participate as observers. And it's similar to any formal international process. So decision making by consensus. But the parties usually or countries usually organise themselves in like-minded groups. So they're effectively negotiating blocks of countries that have similar interests and therefore as a block can be better represented in the negotiations. So for example, there's the alliance of small island states in the Pacific or Caribbean, other island states that are hugely vulnerable to climate issues like sea level rise, and they work together in a like-minded group. So I guess the most notable development recently and where we're at today is the Paris Agreement. So this was adopted at the COP meeting in 2015. And it really was a historic event in terms of global climate cooperation because it established an internationally coordinated long-term agreement. And importantly, it had clear goals to limit the global temperature increase. So everyone collectively committed to limiting the global temperature increase to well below two degrees with strong aspirations to limit it to 1.5 degrees. 
And it was also different to previous agreements because it's structured from the bottom up. So this means that all countries submit their own commitments and objectives and targets in terms of what they will voluntarily commit to deliver as their contribution to the Paris Agreement. So they're submitted in what's called Nationally Determined Contributions or NDCs. And that was a big departure from the Kyoto Protocol where only developed countries had targets that were internationally agreed. And then another important aspect of the Paris Agreement which not a lot of people know, is that it has an inbuilt ratcheting up mechanism. So as part of its structure, it has a five-year cycle where every five years, the countries have to submit new or updated NDCs, so those contributions, and they have to be more ambitious than their previous NDC. So this year is COP26. And it was actually supposed to take place last year in 2020, but it had to be delayed because of COVID. And it's jointly hosted this year by UK and Italy. And the reason that this COP is being talked about a lot is because it's five years since the Paris Agreement was made. So it's the first of those five-year cycles where countries are supposed to up their ambition and communicate new or updated NDCs. And it's the first opportunity where countries can collectively look at how much has been achieved in those five years and how much more we need to do to get on track for those goals. And unfortunately, based on the, the collective commitments under the first round that were submitted, we're nowhere near reaching the temperature goals of the Paris Agreement. So, Actually, we're on track for around three degrees or more of warming, which we know will lead to devastating impacts. So even though countries, they say they have targets and many are reporting on their progress in meeting them, the collective targets between countries are not sufficient. So that's why at the moment there's a lot of dialogue and discussion on um, raising ambition and how countries can increase those emission reduction commitments they've made and also step up their commitments in terms of financing and taking action on adaptation. There's a lot of attention lately on 2050 and net zero by 2050, but really it's this decade to 2030 that is critical. And unless there's sufficient commitments and ambitions in this decade, then we won't ever be on the right path to get to that 2050 net zero goal. Can I ask one other question about what you've got as an aggregate set of targets, but you've also got aggregate reporting on how people are performing. Is there also a function that somebody is playing that says, these are the things, the policies, the strategies that are most successful in driving change. Do we have a sense of, as you said, we're not on track. And my understanding is there's some countries who've done a really good job, but then there are other countries who have dramatically increased their emissions as they have become more developed in part in the last decade. Do we have a sense of what are the policies, the tools and approaches that are most effective in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in aggregate? 
yeah, I think we do. But there's a few different issues that play into it. So right at that top level, there's the commitment. That's high level. It really sets the precedent for where the country is agreeing it will go and what its contribution is to collectively tackling climate change. The next level down, you have the issue of implementing these nationally determined contributions is so hugely varied between countries. And probably the most significant issue is financing. Developing countries and less developed economies need so much financing to take this climate action. So one of the big issues under debate is how countries not only step forward and make their commitment in terms of their targets, but what they will do to collectively mobilise climate finance and direct it to those countries that have less capacity to implement climate action. I'm interested just in an example of that. So an example of an action that a country wants to take to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, but they can't afford to do it. What would be an example of that? For example, in the Pacific, quite a number of the countries have made very ambitious commitments to achieve 100% renewable energy which is fantastic and signals to the international community that they're willing to put all their efforts into that goal, but they can't do that by themselves. There's so many issues that need to be addressed and support that those countries need. It's not just the support in terms of financing an actual solar farm or a wind farm getting battery technology to the Pacific at an affordable price or appropriate technology for them. There's also issues of their regulatory system, what type of regulatory incentives they might have, how is their electricity policy structured so that the tariffs for renewable energy are where they need to be to encourage people to come to the Pacific and develop the projects then you might have issues of supply chains and say, for example, something like port access. Is there sufficient port access in the countries to get the equipment and what they need to develop the projects there? And the private sector, you know, this is really an important issue. We know that the public sector can't finance all of the climate action particularly at the moment in terms of the COVID situation and debt burden, fiscal constraints that a lot of countries are facing. So we need the private sector. But how do you attract the private sector to go, particularly to the Pacific? Going back to that example where, say, the project opportunities are smaller or perhaps it's more risky. How can organisations like ADB or other organisations step in and try to reduce some of that risk and attract the, the private sector to come and develop those projects? Thank you. That's really helpful. I've talked to people in Australia who are driving solar installations and they feel that they don't have enough investment but I can also understand if you've got a small operation in the Pacific Islands, 
as you said, the scale of that investment and the scale of the returns will simply be smaller and the geographic isolation makes it also just more difficult to build those projects. So I can understand how that would be less attractive in terms of attracting investment and a challenge for those countries. Yeah. Absolutely. And in Australia, we have so much, the frameworks are so there, the institutional capacities, the government departments that you need to interact with, the institutions you need to have a conversation with on transmission and distribution lines and off-taking your electricity if you are going to build a project, even access to capital, affordable capital, banks, and then regulatory certainty, like you have a much higher certainty in Australia that laws are not going to change as quickly or that they're more certain, all those issues that other countries just increase the risk so much more in terms of getting people to invest in these types of projects in other countries in the region. Yeah, that makes sense. We've heard about many conversations that have happened. What's your sense of the ratio of talking to decision-making in these big international discussions? Yeah. It's interesting, right? There's a lot of people that think that this process has been really slow and convoluted, but I I think there are major achievements. The Paris Agreement that I talked about before, these international agreements, they're so important, similar to trade agreements or human rights treaties to set the framework for how countries are going to work together on this. The climate change is really complex and the time left to deal with it is so short. So there's no way that one or a few countries can deal with it on their own. Some of the issues, we have emission sources that are really unevenly distributed, right? So we have higher emitters and lower emitters. And we also have mitigation costs that vary. So it's cheaper to take action in some countries than others. But that's not necessarily in the same place as the emissions. And then in terms of impact, you have countries that are hugely vulnerable and are already suffering, disproportionately suffering the impacts of climate change, yet they have really low emissions. So we really have a global responsibility to sort it out. And we know from COVID, for example, how these issues are transboundary. So it's not, if there's action taken in one country, it's not just going to impact that country. It has impacts far beyond its borders. So I guess if we want to accelerate the transition that we know that we need, then from the international level, you need to go to the national level and you need clear long-term national policy. Visionary policy that has long-term aims, but that has clear pathways to get there with short and medium-term goals along that path. And I think the fear this year was that climate action would slow down as a result of COVID, but actually we've seen a lot happen. In our region, China, Japan, Republic of Korea came out and pledged to reach net zero. And then I guess in terms of impact, I don't think you can ignore what's happened since the beginning of the year with President Biden coming into office and the USA subsequently rejoining the Paris Agreement. So the USA had actually withdrawn from the Paris Agreement, but one of the first things Biden did when he came into office was to sign them back up. 
So that's really built a lot of momentum because one of the biggest emitters and the biggest economies is, is back at the table. And there's been media coverage and kind of a new sense of credibility to the process. And then off the back of that, we've seen quite a lot of countries step forward and make more ambitious announcements. Japan came out even beyond that 2050 commitment to make shorter term targets of reducing its emissions by 46% by 2030. South Korea, again, has announced that it will no longer fund overseas coal projects. So these things, again, they're up at that high level, but that's what gives the market signals, right? It influences domestic policy and then it influences public spending. And, and all those things are so critical. With those announcements, countries, even Australia starting to think about how some of these commitments might impact trade deals or possible border adjustments. And I think critically, you start to see the private sector engaged. So we can already see the capital flowing in these directions towards supporting these transitions because you get those stronger market signals and a greater sense of certainty. And I think in the private sector, it's not just about understanding that they need to consider climate risk or think about things like potentially stranded assets. But now there's a shift, a really positive shift to start thinking about the, the opportunity that's available through the low carbon transformation. So that's one side. But then on the other hand, and I talked about it a bit before, but it's really then about the practical realities for the lower income countries of implementing it and, and getting to the same space and the same place that those other countries are so that they have the ability to implement the climate action that, that they need to do. Sometimes we hear it said that there's not much point in Australia doing much in this space because even though we've got high per capita emissions, so high emissions per person, we're a pretty small portion of the overall emissions. But what I'm hearing you say is that there are models of how the systems work well when you're managing a, an economy that's moving away from being more carbon intensive to less intensive that all countries need to put in place. And I'm wondering, are there examples of other countries maybe that are smaller in terms of their overall relative emissions, but that are bringing something to the global discussions or are helping build global capacity because they are putting some of these systems in place really well and those systems can then be replicated in other countries. So you talked, for example, about the need for fiscal decision-making when a treasury is making their investment decisions, setting out their budget, they've got mechanisms to think about and reflect climate risk. Are there examples of countries who are smaller but are a little bit further ahead in these things where other countries, large or small, can benefit from what they're doing, either within the Asia-Pacific region or, or outside of it? I think there's examples of countries that have a clear vision that they want and need to address climate change. And therefore, you start to see that come into all different levels. In terms of countries already having it 
rolled out into their systems completely or um, having been able to, to do that, I don't think we're there yet. But there's very clear examples of countries that have taken a concerted action in a particular sector or area and, and it's been really successful. In Vietnam, there was really concerted efforts to support solar power development. The government saw potential there and they wanted to act on that and significantly increase the solar on the grid. So they put in place feed-in tariffs for certain types of plants. And then as a result of that, the installed solar capacity in Vietnam jumped hugely in quite a short space of time, like a, a year to two years. And the number of solar plants that were connected to the grid went up fourfold or a huge number. And so now that's been quite successful. The government's now looking at further types of incentives. So, for example, renewable auction schemes or how they can build on that. A lot of people have heard of the Green New Deal in the US that's put forward. But Republic of Korea in our region has announced a Green New Deal and they have committed more than 30 billion in financing to boost clean energy, electric vehicles, green infrastructure. And again, it's clear earmarking that financing for them. And that is an implementation plan for a high level commitment. Okay. Yeah. Really interesting. Because I've also heard about examples of countries like Morocco and Spain who are really racing ahead in terms of their solar technology development and installations. And I'm just trying to think, you can be a small country, but can you have a disproportionate impact because you're getting ahead of the learning curve on some of these technologies and then export either that way of thinking about things from a policy perspective or the technology or the energy itself, I know is an aspiration ultimately that we'll be able to actually export renewable energy in the way that we export fossil fuels at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. What kinds of economic opportunities are you seeing that are being identified and discussed? We've talked about the cost of transition, but is there a sense that there is economic value to be created on the other side of those investments in that transition? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you asked me this because I think this is where the conversation needs to be. We've really moved on from the stage where we need to talk about taking climate action to let's talk about what the opportunity is here. Countries and, and businesses should recognise that they don't want to be the ones left behind. One of my colleagues said to me the other day, the smart ones know to jump on the truck and start driving it instead of throwing stones from the sidelines. Right? And it sounds like a simple statement, but it's so true for where we're at and the opportunity that's there. And I think what's really good to build understanding on is that it's not just about addressing climate change. It's really rethinking about how we want to live and what we value. It's about transforming cities and transport systems, the way we meet our energy needs, what we eat. So they're not just cleaner, but also more efficient. And at the same time, we can think about delivering other benefits like addressing poverty, increasing gender equality as part of these solutions so that we shift to start valuing all types of capital, 
environmental capital, social capital, not just financial capital. Take transport, for example. Do we want to really continue the model where in some parts of the world you have people sitting for long periods of time by themselves in cars each day to get to work? And then at the other extreme, you have people jamming onto overcrowded buses, inhaling diesel fumes to get there. So when we talk about transformation and the opportunity that we've got here, let's think about all those things. And there's a lot of work ongoing on this. There's the new climate economy. It's a flagship project of the Global Commission on the Economy and the Climate. And it's a big international initiative that was set up explicitly to look at how countries can achieve economic growth while dealing with the risks posed by climate change. And they've put out a lot of analysis and done a lot of work and they highlight so many examples of how you can take ambitious climate action but and deliver economic gain and deliver jobs and then avoid premature deaths from air pollution uh, and other co-benefits. And we see countries starting to talk about it. Indonesia, uh, the government's doing some work on how to measure growth, not only by GDP growth, but also looking at resource efficiency, environmental sustainability, social equity. In China, we've seen discussions on how natural capital and social capital can start to become objectives of economic policy. And then I think all that talk, right, when you look down to what are the economic opportunities, and one thing I feel really passionate about is what are the opportunities for Australia and energy, for example, which is one of the key areas that so many people associate with the, the climate discussion. So we have the first generation of renewable energy, like solar and wind farm. Then there's new forms. So green hydrogen, ammonia, algae fuels, things like that. Then there's a next step from that. If Australia becomes a renewables-based economy, then we can start to produce low carbon versions of energy intensive products like steel and aluminium. So when you start to think about your export markets that have climate targets, you start to have really attractive products for those markets. And then even more than just manufacturing products, it's about transformational shifts in how we think about connecting generation sources to demand. So for example, we know that Australia has abundant renewable energy resources. We should shift to start thinking about the renewable energy itself as the export product. So developing renewable energy projects in Australia that can export electricity to Asia, we're also supporting the job generation in Australia. Another example, how can Australia, and I think you talked about it a little bit with Morocco and Spain, how can we take advantage of our scientific capability and things like the quality of our universities or our industrial capability to start to think about developing products like meat alternatives, alternative fabrics, or the amazing skills we have, for example, in sustainable buildings and not just buildings that have high environmental objectives but are also beautiful and nice to live in. How can we start exporting that and taking it to the world to respond to these um, economies that are going to have carbon constraints. And then I think it filters right down, what are we doing about the future of jobs and our education systems? The way we educate 
kids now, the university degrees, are they necessarily the ones that are preparing our kids to be leaders in, in a net zero future? Yeah, big questions and big opportunities. And I think for Australia, climate, it's not hugely present in a lot of day-to-day discussions. As I was saying, this decade is really the critical decade for action. We're seeing that countries are willing to to step forward and say, here's my commitment. You can sense that shift globally. Countries are engaged in the discussion. Uh, But then you also see it in terms of where the money's going. You can see that's where big companies are investing in R&D. You know, for example, car company, they're putting their money into electric vehicles. That's the vehicles that are going to be the nicest to drive. That's where they're spending a lot of money. You can see it in terms of where institutional investors are going, what types of opportunities they're looking for. Once we see the capital starting to flow in that direction, you get a, a greater sense that it's going to happen. And as I said, it may be different between different countries, the rate at where it happens or that, but that's where the world now that there's that many countries that have made those commitments that recognize that's what needs to happen, that the US is back and it has a long-term commitment. And really to boil it down to the critical point is we don't really have a choice. We have to, we have to address climate change and we have to address it now. There is millions of vulnerable people that are already impacted and will be impacted more and more by climate change. And those impacts will grow. We will feel them in all countries. And so we don't have a choice but to put our collective efforts and our minds to getting to net zero. It does remind me a little bit of probably myself as a university student with one or maybe more assignments, leaving it to the last minute, but then somehow getting it done in a last big push, it does feel a little bit like we've been procrastinating and suddenly the due date's getting closer and and things are starting to shift and happen in a different way. I think so. And there's not necessarily a really detailed understanding everywhere in terms of how it works and what's there, but there's definitely a growing understanding and a growing acceptance that it's an issue. And for some, it's an issue that they're passionately committed to addressing. For others, it's an inevitability. For some, it's just a smart business choice. But I think what's really exciting is those that will have the vision to see that it's an opportunity. Climate action doesn't mean economic compromise. There's enough of an understanding and expertise globally that you can achieve sustainable economic growth that is inclusive but that at the same time is transformative in terms of building resilience and supporting a low carbon development pathway. Mm. I'm asking everybody if there was one big idea that you'd be advocating for that all Australians could get behind that would safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future, what would you be suggesting? Most of my work is in the policy space. So I think If we have a clear vision and commitment at the policy level, then that will give us the right incentives and drivers will then filter down to support action in all the areas that we need it. We don't lack the skills. We don't 
lack the technology, we have capital. And if we can get that clear signal and that clear vision, then that will set the right base for that transformation that we need. Yeah, that makes sense. Kate, thank you so much for that really clear explanation of some pretty complicated terms and discussions. If people are interested to find out more about the work of the Asian Development Bank, they can go and check out your website at www.adb.org. So thanks again, Kate. It's been a pleasure to chat to you today. Thanks, Liana. It's uh, been a real pleasure and good luck with the rest of the project. Thank you. And just a little amendment since we recorded the podcast. The Asian Development Bank has actually announced that it's increasing its ambition on climate finance for its developing member countries. So it's up from the $80 billion that Kate mentioned to $100 billion from the period 2019 to 2030. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org. Dot org.